Welcome back to the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We are studying through the book of Deuteronomy in our large group studies every other week here at Calvary Philly and in our home groups spread around the area. The book of Deuteronomy chronicles the last little bit of time before the children of Israel moved into the land of Canaan. And the biggest thing happening in Deuteronomy is that it gives us these speeches that Moses gave to the children of Israel. We really get to hear the heart of Moses and even more importantly, the heart of God for his people on the eve of one of the most momentous times in their history. And there's so much for us to glean as the people of God as we are moving through our lives. So here we go with the next study in the book of Deuteronomy. going to be in Deuteronomy 14 tonight. If you would like to, the first verses we're going to read are in Romans 8. So if you feel like flipping there, then we'll flip to Deuteronomy 14. If it's your first time here, welcome. Let's pray and uh, we'll get into this. So Father, thank you. And uh, not to be all confession-y, Lord, but just because uh, I'm, I'm praying and I actually need this. I don't know, my head feels sort of distant and, and scattered. I pray that you'd help me not to be distant or scattered. This could be a rough, you know, 50 minutes for everybody, Lord. So I pray you help me locate and uh, help all of us. Maybe I'm not the only one. Maybe the, maybe the times we're living in or fatigue from work or uh, anxiety for some people or stress or whatever just leads to sort of mental fog or even just feeling um, maybe maybe sort of disconnected from things. So if anyone's feeling that tonight with me, Lord, I pray that you would, you would just draw us to center. You're, I'm just so thankful, Lord, you're never disconnected. You're never withdrawn. You don't struggle with anxiety or, or depression or feeling dead to things. And we're so thankful for that, Lord, because where would we be if you did? If you weren't constantly, consistently engaged, aware, loving, initiating, Lord. And so tonight, as every night, Lord, we just, we need you to come and help us open your word to us. Give us ears to hear you. Give us hearts to understand and obey your word. Help me, as I always say, Lord, not to get in the way of your word at all. You are the powerful one. You're the one who speaks the words of life, Lord, and we just, we need your words. So we pray you give them to us tonight, Lord, and I pray that you would go even way beyond what I even say and just teach your word uh, to everyone here, myself included, Lord. And we thank you. Thank you that we can gather. We pray for a night of peace. So we pray for that you protect this time, that we could hear your word, pray for each other and sing your praises, and then go back to our sleep and then to our work tomorrow, Lord. And uh, we thank you for life, Lord. We thank you for life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, just in case it is your first time with us here on Monday nights, we are reading through the book of Deuteronomy together. That's what we're doing. Uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. And actually, it's the fifth part of the first Bible can be divided up into collections. And the first collection, long collection, we call the Pentateuch. Um, that's just what it gets called. It's five books that start the Bible off. And if you're not familiar at all with the Bible, it would help you to know that the Pentateuch begins 
in Genesis chapter one with the creation of the world. And it tells us how God made literally everything. And if you don't know the Bible starts that way, you got to go read the beginning of the Bible because it's just awesome. It tells you where you came from and where everything came from. And then next, it tells us about the actions of the first human beings. What did the first two human beings do and what they did to create chaos and death in the world? That's actually the story. And it explains why the world is the way it is even today. And that's what the first opening pages of the Bible tell us. But the story that the Bible tells is actually the story of what God did to fix the mess that men and women made. And by the time we come to Deuteronomy, what God has done is to begin to work in, in the world of humans, in, in the world of humanity from the inside. He's, he's gone, he's gone right to the center of the problem in the universe, which happens to be us, unfortunately. And so from the inside, he begins to work in our world. He picked one man named Abraham, and he began to work with him and his family then as the generations rolled out in such a way that what God did with that family could become really kind of like a beachhead, like the beginning of of an invasion, a beachhead for his reconquest of the world. That's at least one way to talk about it. And his whole point is to free the world and to heal it from the effects of sin that started back with Adam and Eve. The family of people that came from Abraham, just to catch any of you up who aren't familiar with these things, the family of people that came from that man named Abraham grew to the point that it became 12 huge tribes. So 12 tribes that made up really a small nation known as Israel, connected to, same as the nation of Israel today. And they ended up living in Egypt through a whole set of circumstances and then they were oppressed and, ins- and actually enslaved in Egypt. And God at that point literally showed up and he, he freed them and he led them out of slavery under the leadership of a man named Moses. The second book of the Bible, which we studied together, Exodus is what it's called, tells that story. And then the next three books record things that happen as Israel moved north from Egypt, I guess from your perspective that way, north from Egypt to the land of Canaan, which God had promised to give them as a new homeland. And so the book of Deuteronomy is the record. This is what Deuteronomy is, because otherwise you probably wouldn't know unless you'd studied it. The book of Deuteronomy is the record of what Moses said to the people, the nation of Israel, right before they moved into the land. It's actually sort of a book of speeches. The conquest of that land is recorded in the book after Deuteronomy called Joshua. But first, all of them, some people say it was two million people, stopped and they camped right outside of the land and God spoke through Moses to the people in a series of long speeches. And in these speeches, Moses was doing a few different things actually. He was recounting the important parts of their history, uh, things they would need as part of their national memory as they move forward. He was explaining and detailing some of the law code that God was giving to Israel that would govern their life in the land. Uh, and he was warning Israel of the dangers that they would face in the future. And specifically, Moses repeatedly warned them about spiritual dangers that they were going to face, which turn out to be the most dangerous kind of dangers they would face. They were going to face a lot of obstacles, but it was the spiritual dangers that actually held the, the most potential disaster for them. And we've come up to chapter 14, which is in the middle of one of these long speeches that Moses gave. And in this section of the speech that we're going to look at tonight, Moses is reminding the people of some of the laws that God had already given them and explaining and adding adding to those laws as well. So he's like explaining, he's adding. I plan on moving all the way into chapter 16 tonight 
because uh, we could study each one in detail. There's tons of history and culture and sort of backstory and parallels. But instead tonight, I want to find some of the common threads that tie these laws together and I think help us understand them as a whole. So we're not going to, again, spend a lot of time on each law in particular. We're going to see some of the core ideas, I think, behind each of them. So as we read tonight, uh, I want to remind you of some of the things. This is important for tonight. I want to reach back into our studies in Exodus and remind you of some of the things that we saw when we studied the laws in the book of Exodus together, because the same principles apply that we saw, if you were here, that, that we saw when we read them back then apply to what we're going to be reading tonight. When we were reading Exodus, we saw that there's actually some truths from the New Testament that help us understand at least one way, I think an important way to read laws like this. And that's important, again, because these laws were given to a people from a totally different context than ours more than 3,000 years ago. And the Bible is clear, just in case you don't know this, the Bible is clear that for followers of Jesus, these laws don't hold exactly the same place for us if you're a follower of Christ, that they did for the people who were hearing Moses speak them. There was an audience for this first book. And so the laws work a little differently from those first people than they do uh, for us. So Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the laws given by Moses. I'm summarizing some New Testament teaching here. And then Jesus actually died to take the punishment for all of us who didn't keep the law. So he did keep the law. He did fulfill God's law everything we're going to be reading tonight and more. But then he died for all of us who didn't keep God's laws. And then he rose from the dead again to offer God's forgiveness and his eternal life to anyone who would trust in him and the work he did on their behalf. Like, yes, Jesus, I needed you to do that. So if that's my way to be forgiven, I can sort of receive your merit, then that's what I want. That's God's plan. You can call that the good news, that someone else kept the law in your place and died to take the penalty for your breaking of the law, my breaking of the law. So in one sense, it's important to say this, these laws have no jurisdiction over anyone who follows Jesus because he's already taken care of the demands and the claims of God's law. And that's just big because like, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you start reading it, you start getting in all these laws and you might think like, wait, do I have to do all this? Or you might be schooled in the Bible and you might think when you hear someone like me teach God's law, you're like, make sure you tell them bro, that they don't have to keep all these laws. And either way, it's important just to say that. Uh, but when we studied the laws back in Exodus a few months ago, we read a passage from the book of Romans, as I told you, that helped us see what these laws can do for us. So it's Romans 8, 3, and 4. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to read. Paul writes in verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, just like we talked about, on account of sin. He, Jesus, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So verse four there in Romans eight is key. I think it offers a really practical and really helpful way to understand how to read the laws we're going to read tonight and things like it. So when Paul says in Romans that the Spirit of God enables followers of Jesus to fulfill, these are his words, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, I think he's using the term righteous requirement to refer to something like what's really at the heart of all the laws in the Old Testament, what God really wanted us to know and get out of them. And he's telling us in verse 4, 
that the Holy Spirit enables Christians to understand that righteous requirement and to do it. And part of this is remembering that Jesus interpreted all of this for us when he said that the most important commands in the Old Testament were to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the words of Christ. And that's got to be part of what Paul meant then when he wrote about the righteous requirement of the law. He must have meant something like the Holy Spirit will help us see in the Old Testament law how to love God and how to love our neighbor. I think that would make sense if uh, assuming Paul and Jesus are syncing up, which I believe they are. And so if you combine these two ideas, when you read the laws in the Old Testament, you can see that if the core of all of them is that we would love God and love our neighbor, it means that what the Holy Spirit helps us do when we read these laws first is to see what we see what we need to see in them like what do they tell us about god's will that transcends the specific place and time that israel occupied in the book of deuteronomy and also again how do they practically help us understand how someone could love god and love their neighbor and probably those two things go together right so what do they tell us about god's will that sort of transcends the time israel lived in And maybe another way to say it is, how do they tell us how to practically love God and love our neighbor? Uh, Maybe even in our context, you can say. So that's what we're doing as as we read these laws. We're taking the New Testament's direction, hopefully, um, keeping the things that Jesus taught us in mind, we're just trying to see how these laws can practically help us live out Jesus's command to love God and love our neighbor. And a lot of these laws focus, that we're going to read tonight, focus more on neighbor love But of course, again, we should never forget that one of the chief ways we demonstrate that we love God is to love our neighbor. So we're not really dealing with any kind of antithesis here, like it's either loving God or loving your neighbor. These two loves, they don't compete. They go together, they display each other, you could say. So as we start to read some of these laws in Deuteronomy, you can turn to Deuteronomy 14 if you're not there already. One thing I want to point out is that in this section, there seems to be a couple related themes running through all of them. There seems to be some real direction about both worship. We're going to see as we, as we read how we love and express affection for God and how we serve him. And this other thing that keeps coming up, I think that fact that everything about who we are as men and women matters. Like, and so I'm just going to keep, I think, hopefully highlighting both of those things as we go. Everything about who we are as men and women, as humans, as children of God, Everything matters, and we'll just see that as we go here. And, of course, I think those two things are related, right? So, if being a human means that everything about you matters, then that's part of what it means to worship. These things are related, too. Sometimes we talk about, you might hear Christians say, worship is all of life. Hear people say that. And that's probably part of what's going on here. All of life matters, so nothing about your life is outside of your worship of God. It's all sort of under that that umbrella. It's all in that land. And when you come to explicitly worship God, then the way you worship him matters too, right? Worship matters as well. So chapter 14, verse 1, let's just start to read here, and we'll see some of these things together. So 14.1, book of Deuteronomy. Moses says to the children of Israel, you are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead. 
For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a holy people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And these are the verses that we were looking at in our home groups back at the end of August. I'm sure a lot of you remember them. We spent a whole night on them. Notice here, Israel is learning here the idea that their bodies mattered. Your body matters. The bodies of those who are redeemed by God this is sort of in this passage. If you studied it with us, you got the details. The bodies of those who are redeemed by God are not to be used to signal idolatry or some kind of reverence for departed spirits. That was what they were, they were learning here. The way the bodies of pagans are used. The, the background of the specific things described here is that people would do the things described in verse one in order to secure like good favor of the spirits of the dead, specifically their departed ancestors. That's what he's referring to. He's not, it's not really a verse about hairstyle. It's a verse about rituals and marking yourself to, to sort of show to the spiritual world that you want their favor or something like that. And speaking through Moses here, God just says, that's not for you. You're the children of God. You see that there, very beginning. So dedicate your body only to the Lord to fear and serve and worship him, not to other spirits, not to other spiritual powers. Verse three, you shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. If you've never read this before, here you go. We've got some Old Testament dietary law. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split into two parts, and this animal also must chew the cud among the animals, right? Verse seven. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud but do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine is unclean for you. A lot of people know that one. Because it is cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud, nor shall you eat the, their flesh or touch their dead carcasses. Swine, right? Verse 9. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. All clean birds you may eat, but these you shall not eat. The eagle, because they're endangered. The vulture, the buzzard, the red kite, the falcon, because they're cool, the kite after their kinds, every raven after its kind, you can't eat an ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, owls are also very cool, the white owl, the jackdaw. Does anyone know what a jackdaw is? I've, I should have looked it up. Good Bible teachers know exactly what a jackdaw is. The carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, or where would you get babies? The heron after its kind. And the, what is this? The hoopo. And the bat. Proving that the Bible is perfect in its biology. You're not allowed to eat bats because they're unclean birds. The Hebrew word there isn't, it's not a word for a scientific description of a bird. And Moses is like, God, bats aren't birds. And the Lord's like, write it down. And I was like, oh no, right? This is going to not go well. And 3,000 years. No, it has the idea of things that fly. That was how they classified. We could have different classifications for animals, right? Instead of fish, bird, we could have things that swim and dolphins would be part of them and things that fly and bats, right? You get the idea? So it's just, it's a different way of talking about animals. It has to do with probably function and where they live as opposed to our sort of mammals, fish. Uh, but that's good because 
hoopos aren't even real animals and they're in that list anyway. So verse 19, I shouldn't make a joke out of the Bible. Also, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you. So also the insects that fly, they shall not be eaten. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not anything that, and by the way, clean has to do with just God's rules. He doesn't mean if a bird's dirty, don't eat it. But if you wash it off, then you can eat it, right? These are classifications of God's establishing what's clean and unclean. It's just because he said it. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. You may give it to the alien, you know, the foreigner who is within your gates, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. If you have, again, any familiarity with the Old Testament at all, you probably know there's actually a lot of these rules about food. Again, like I said a second ago, it's called the dietary law. That's one of the things people call it. And you might also know that this is one of the parts of the law that Jesus specifically taught about. And he said specifically that this law was no longer enforced for his followers. So we don't keep these rules. Uh, a lot of you eat pork, right? Some of you don't eat any meat, but that has nothing to do with this, right? We don't keep these, these laws uh, as Christians, these rules. But again, what was God, I think it's a question you ask yourself, what was God really trying to teach the Israelites with laws like this? And, and how can these things help us? They don't tell you how to eat, but how can they help us know uh, how to serve God and how to know God, even if we don't need the specific rules anymore? So first, notice in verse 21, that same phrase that we saw up in verse one, if you scan your eyes between those two verses, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So that's important that the, that that repeats there. And that's the idea, I think, behind the words for you. Now, if you look at verse seven, right? Verse seven, uh, verse eight and 10. You see that in all three of those verses, it's unclean for you. The swine is unclean for you. And that helps us see the way to read verse three. We should probably read it with an emphasis on the very first word of the, of the verse. You shall not eat, eat any detestable thing. Why? Because you're a special people. Because your identity is different from everyone else. Because you belong to God. And because of that, everything in your life matters, as I said a minute ago. Even your food. I think this is at least part of what, what God is teaching through Moses here. And there's another thing going on here too. I think maybe you can remember that as we're reading Deuteronomy, there's this idea that as Israel made their sacrifices, so other laws, a lot of other laws that have to do with sacrifices, it was, the sacrifice was a meal they were sharing with God. I don't know if, don't know if you've ever noticed that as you read that they were, it, it's talked about that way. And so one way to understand the altar in the tabernacle or the temple that they sacrificed on was that it was God's table. That's one way to understand that. And they were invited to eat at God's table with him because they were his people. They didn't really believe that God like bent down and a giant mouth came down and like ate the, you know, the sheep and went away. It, they understood that, that, that they weren't literally feeding God and he didn't literally need their food. But it, that's one of the, one of the ways it was viewed. And so laws like this about food are intended to show them, I think, that in some ways every meal was a sacrifice and it's like every table was an altar. And every time they ate, they ate in the presence of God. So there were rules about how you killed that sacrifice. There were rules about how you killed the actual sacrifice. And there were rules about how you killed the meat you were going to eat 
at what you would call a regular meal because you're the people of God is the idea. And, and, and your table is God's table. You sit down alone in your apartment or with your family and God's there. And I do think that was part of the idea here. In the New Testament, we're taught that followers of Jesus are to sit at their table and acknowledge the presence of God by offering thanks. Some of us, this is like so basic. Since you were a little kid, your parents were like, fold your hands. And you're like, you know, I still am going over with my sons. Tonight, my, I shouldn't tell stories about my kids. Tonight, my middle son, we get done praying and my middle son says to my youngest son, Gabriel, I could hear you chewing while we were praying. And he, you know, he, Isaiah likes things, you know, he didn't like that. And my youngest son is the classic youngest son. He's like, just looking at him like, are you going to come across the table at me? Like, what are you going to do? You know? And my wife looked at me and I decided like, I'm not addressing this. I got to leave in a half hour. Like, I think, I think I say this every night. Put your fork down. <laughs> it's parenting, right? Don't take another bite. Quick before, let's pray. They're all like shoveling food in their mouth. I'm like, stop. We're talking to God, you know? But it is awesome as a parent to sit there and whether they understand it or not, be like, Father, thank you. Thank you. Again, here we are. You brought us to the table again. And they get it, you know, I think sometimes. Thank you for feeding us. Thank you for this family. And just acknowledging that you're in the presence of God. And again, that's what Jesus taught. Sit at your table, acknowledge him by offering thanks. In Hebrews 13, 15, write down if you want. The language of sacrifice is explicitly used of giving thanks. The writer of Hebrews links them together. So, so that, so the link I'm making there is real, right? And you might already be thinking, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> of verses like, it's really good for your ego, right? First Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. That's first Corinthians. So Jesus declared, in the Gospels, Mark chapter 7, you can read it. Jesus declared all foods clean for his followers. But we're taught that that's not because food doesn't matter, right? The fact that there's not a rule about it now that we have, oh, I can't eat the rock hyrax. It's not because food doesn't matter. The worship of God's people can't be contained by a church building or an hour-long church service. And I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say that, but it's important, I think, to see here. The idea is that the worship of God's people is always breaking out. It's flooding all of life. So eating is a part of worship is the idea, I think. Dinner happens in God's presence. Again, you, bat, you gather everyone, you bow your head over that food, and you bless God for being your father with an open hand and a full fridge or however it works for you. Right? It's, it's, it's such a blessing. And it's such a blessing to just acknowledge God's goodness and generosity uh, it's important to acknowledge that there are many people who don't eat the way maybe a lot of us do eat. That's an important part of our Thanksgiving and our prayer. But it's not wrong just to bless God for his bounty, right? If he gives you enough food to eat, it's because he's good. And so you can praise God for it. It's awesome. And again, as I said, specifically notice the idea here in this passage of clean and unclean. That was the, that was the, the particular way that Israel showed that their food mattered, that God gave them to show by separating clean and unclean. Jesus didn't teach, this is important. He didn't teach that the, the categories of clean and unclean don't matter or that the reality of clean and unclean don't matter. He, he taught that food wasn't a matter of clean and unclean for his followers, but he taught that his followers 
needed to understand the deeper and truer meaning of clean and unclean. He taught that clean and unclean, again, they weren't dietary matters, they were inner spiritual issues. Jesus taught this, right? It's a heart that loves sin that's unclean before God, not the rock badger or, or whatever anymore. And so, again, he died on the cross and he shed his blood. The Bible says, because it's his blood that makes us clean all the way, right? In ways that food could never touch. Like eating clean kosher food cannot clean me the way that I need to be cleaned. And I mean, when you really start to dig into this, you see that Jesus showed us that when, I'm sorry, when Jesus showed us that we don't keep the Old Testament law, it wasn't really that he was just being relaxed. It wasn't like he showed up and and he was like, you know, I've been really hype about rules for a few thousand years and I'm just kind of tired of that. Like, let's just chill. Like for the whole church age, you know, we'll just chill. It's not that he was being relaxed. It's that actually he was leading his people to see into the heart of things. That's what he was after. You can almost imagine him saying, let's talk about what the dietary law was really about, guys. I mean, I actually think that's kind of what he was doing in his teaching. See into the heart of things. See what was really important and see how much being a special people set apart to God, like God said Israel was, is about a whole life pervaded by God's holiness, right? Our whole soul being full of his cleansing presence, not just our dinner plate. Think about how many people in America might be meticulous about eating, you know, good food, well-grown, free of junk. That's good. We should, right? You should take care of your body. It's important. But how many people make sure that everything that goes into their mouth is like top-notch, but then into their eyes and heart, they just let the most unclean things. Isn't that true? And so, like, it's good to have good, clean bodies. That's a, that's a good stewardship. But it just doesn't avail anything if our hearts are full of horrible, horrible things and you stand unclean before God and he'll say, but I didn't give you a diet. I invited you to be clean by the blood and then to live a clean inner life, right? Look at verse 22. You shall truly tithe. So tithe was to pay a tenth. You shall truly tithe the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil. So all this stuff, right? Give a tenth of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Interesting there, verse 23, verse 24. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you were not able to carry the tithe. In other words, they might have lived far away from the place where they had to go to the tabernacle where the altar and the priest was to offer it, right? So he's like, if you have to, if you have to travel, it's too far for you to carry the tenth of all your animals, right? That's the idea. And all your oil and all your flat. You're like, are you serious? Right? I have to take that all down to Jerusalem. If it's too far, uh, or if the place your Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 25, then exchange it for money where you live is the idea. Then sell, turn it into money, sell it, and then take the money in your hand because you can carry that even if you can't carry like three cows, right? Carry the money and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. That would be wherever the tabernacle is pitched. And you shall, look at this verse. You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires to eat is the idea for oxen, sheep, for wine or similar drink, whatever your heart desires. He says it again. 
you shall eat there before the Lord your God. That's what I was talking about, right? You're invited to dinner with God and you shall rejoice, you and your whole household. So not just your food, your dietary law, all your possessions, everything you own matters. That's what he's saying. Everything you own, he says to Israel, is part of a life of worship. So worship God with your possessions by making them available for his use. That's one way to read this. They had a specific rule back then, right? Give 10%. A lot of you know this. And, and that directed how they were supposed to acknowledge God's ownership of all they had. The slice of the pie that they gave, that 10%, was simply just to say to God, you gave us the whole pie, God. That's what the 10% said. You gave us the whole pie. It's all yours. We were slaves in Egypt. You gave us this built up, beautiful, cultivated land like that. You've blessed us. You asked for a 10th back. Of course we'll give you. It's all yours, right? It's all yours, Lord. If anyone's ever really given you something huge, you you know what that feels like. They come to you and they're like, oh, actually, would you mind help me out with blah, blah, blah? You're like, yes, right? Yes. And God had hooked them up with literally a whole life. But, but that thought, everything I have is yours, God. Isn't it exactly the kind of thinking that's held up in the New Testament as the way a follower of Jesus thinks? That's exactly what's laid out for us. And look at verse 26 again. I just think it's so important for us to see things like verse 26, even back then, all those years ago, more than 3,000 years ago, what, what kind of life does God say this life of being as people will be? And you take your offering, you go to where God is. That's what he says. You have a party. Buy whatever you got the craves for. I don't know, enchiladas, pliables, and some of you. Whatever you like, right? Gather your family, Raise it up before the Lord and rejoice. That's, that's the picture that's given to us here. Look at verse 27. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part or inheritance with you. And at the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. So you have a list of people there in verse 29. Now, Levite, just in case you don't know, was someone from the tribe of Levi, one of those 12 big tribes that Israel had grown into, the tribe of Levi. And God had appointed the people in that tribe to take care of the tabernacle we've been talking about. And later they would take care of the temple when it became a permanent structure. And that was the place where Israel came to worship God. So the Levites didn't, they didn't get to own land because their time is the idea was was supposed to be taken up with helping God's people worship God. And that meant that when that they wouldn't have the same kind of resources when it came time for everyone to worship God. They wouldn't really have their own things necessarily in the same way uh for not that they didn't own anything, but they just didn't have the same kind of kind of I guess you say possessions, kind of yeah, things to offer for the worship of God. So in that sense as we're reading these things, they would have ended up in a, in a similar situation to the other members of this list, to the stranger, which means immigrant or foreigner of some sort. That's important for Christians to remember, right? Uh, and orphans and widows, people who would be economically disadvantaged. So the point is, remember that, yes, remember all of life matters, like we're saying, your body, your possessions, 
They're all meant to be taken up in a life of worship. And also, people matter. And what's interesting about these verses and the verses that follow is that I think they exhibit, and then they would because God knows everything, the verses exhibit a real awareness that when life is going well, and I think you'll know what I mean when I say this, when we have more than enough and we love God, you know, you're not ruining your life with sin, your life's in order, you love God, you have more than enough, if people in your life you love, you're, you're celebrating in his presence, like verse 26 says, right in the middle of that, it can be, it could be very easy for God's people to just sort of stop there and just enjoy the good things that God's given them. And to forget that there are people all around who don't have those kinds of things. Very simple. But those people all around matter, I think is the idea here. And those people are actually part of a life of worship for God's people, even more than things are. So by including, you know, we use the term the marginalized. By including the marginalized, God was ensuring that worship and celebrating his presence didn't just turn into sort of a self-indulgent thing for his people. Because, I mean, I'll just say, few things in life are richer than having some friends over who have one heart and one mind and love the Lord. And you have some good food. And you have an undisturbed night. And maybe you have some prayer, Right? And your conversation kind of flow back and forth between like totally mundane, normal things and spiritual things and theological truths and a joke that someone tells. It's just like, and the sun's down and the stars are up. It's awesome, isn't it? I mean, if you've never experienced it, hang around, make some real friends in church, you'll get them. And you'll be like, this, the new earth is going to be great, right? But God was ensuring that the worship, that kind of life didn't turn simply self-indulgent. I think we all know uh, how that could be something for any of us. And I, I think there's something essential for all of us to think. And maybe we could say it's something like, again, one of the ways to make sure that we're worshiping and enjoying God with our things. One of the ways to make, make sure I say this clearly. One of the ways to make sure that we're, we have our things and we're worshiping and enjoying God with our things and not just worshiping and enjoying our things is I think in these passages right here, it's it's just by making sure that part of our life of worship is to use our things to bless and include those who don't have those things. So worship should feel more like a party probably where everyone's invited. Not that you can't have nights with your, like the night I just described, it's not a sin to have that night with your Christian friends, but the worship of Jehovah, the worship of God, of Jesus, should feel more like a party where everyone's invited uh, than a party with just us and our friends. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, church isn't supposed to be exclusive at a very basic level. And then it keeps going here in chapter 15. Notice chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is the Lord's, it is called, excuse me, the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother, except where there be no, uh, when, sorry, verse four, except when there may be no poor among you. This is such an interesting verse based on other things that are said. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Verse five, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. There were times in their history where they attained to this. And 
here uh, we're we're seeing as we as we've been reading now this picture being painted here of a good life, right? Plenty of stuff, family, food, feasting, like we're saying, it's all great. God's there, it's all good. But we know that all this was occurring for Israel, just like it does for us, in a world that's still messed up every day you wake up. That was their world. Sin had messed everything up, and the effects of sin are gonna continue until Jesus comes back and he gets rid of them. Rid of all the sin. That's what he's going to do. He's going to rid the world of sin. But until that happens, there are things like debt and financial difficulty. But in God's mind, you read a passage like this, even people in debt matter. So somehow falling into debt doesn't mean that you fall out of the category to God of people that matter. So Moses told Israel to worship God by releasing people from debts. It's pretty awesome. I mean, I think, again, if you follow Jesus, if you're familiar with the things of Christ, you should hear all kinds of echoes here. Financial debt, among other things, is is a picture of the debt that all of us owe to God. And when God's people forgave their financial debts and wiped the slate clean so that people around them could be free of that burden, and it is a burden, some of you know, right? When God's people did that, they were acting out the truth That was a financial picture of the truth that that is how God acts towards all of us, right? That's how God acts towards humanity. He is always, he is always proposing, so to speak, that he, that he wipe out our debt. And it's still true today. Anyone who comes to Jesus, anyone who cries out for mercy, God forgives all their debt of sin freely, entirely, and they never bear it again. He never like, you know, after a few minutes, reloads the sin back onto them. It's done. So do it, God says, to his people here. He said, go enact that in the real world. Go enact that financially. Worship God by releasing people from their burdens. Now, again, I'm not really thinking of the the current debates about what, what the government is doing or anything like that. But just in terms of like considering this scripture, I was I was reading it and I was thinking, if people really did this, and notice, he doesn't say the king and the federal Israeli government shall release people from debts. And if they do, I mean, it's great, whatever. I'm not commenting on that. The point is, he tells the individuals to do it. So you just think, if people did this, what kind of life would that produce? If that's just the way it was, what kind of society would it produce if people who, who were in a position to help someone who had fallen into crushing debt, if it was just the way things worked, that they helped that person out, right? And I'm, I'm not saying that none of you do that, and maybe you've been a recipient of that. Some people do this, but just imagine if that was society-wide, right? Um, it's interesting that, again, I, I'm not trying to make a, it's, it's good in a room like this that I might have people that call me to account. Let me just throw this out there. God doesn't seem to be worried about the economic consequences of debt forgiveness every seven years. That's all I'm going to say. I don't want our economy to crash either. I understand modern economies are different than the Israeli. You're like, this is an agrarian economy. You're right. It was different. It's just interesting, right? This is the heart of God. He's like, tell him he's good and he can go. And And what he says over and over again, and I'll bless you. Isn't that what he says? You do this and I'll bless you. The economy of Israel was supposed to run on completely illogical, 
probably economically unsound bases because they were to trust God and receive his blessing when they stepped out in faith. And if you went to your wife and you were like, I mean, it's the seventh year, we can forgive them. But, you know, I have my own obligations and I don't really know if we're going to be able to swing forgiving them. And if she was like, honey, you did devos yesterday and you read Deuteronomy, you better trust God and he'll bless us. And then you were like, okay. (laughs) And you did it. And the idea is God's going to take care of you. God's going to take care of you. Again, what kind of life would that produce? Like when a society where joy and thankfulness to God and abundance and forgiveness and mercy are sort of at the core of things. Imagine a society where that's the core instead of greed and anxiety and self-indulgence and self-preservation, right? None of us have ever lived in this kind of society. We've only lived in a society driven by preserve yourself and just that's the ultimate thing, right? So this is not a comment about you shouldn't have a bank account or anything like that. It's just... Let, it's great to let the scriptures wash over our brains, isn't it? And maybe maybe help us uh, in certain ways. And again, maybe because those things are more the natural tendency, the, the, the greed, anxiety, and self-indulgence, the natural tendency of everybody in every age, God helps us see what kinds of things he gives his command, but in these next verses, he helps us see what kinds of things would keep Israel from actually having that kind of society. So look at verse 7. And notice in these verses what God says three times about the kind of heart, specifically the heart, that they needed to watch out for as he gives them these commands. Verse 7, If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. I just sort of painted that picture, right? And your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing. Because if I give it to him now, in three months, I'll have to forgive him the debt. So I'll wait and give it to him in six months. And then 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 he can pay me back for seven years. You get it? Right? The seventh year of release is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you and it becomes sin among you. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. For some of you, this is very natural. God bless you, you generous souls. Some of us, we read this and we're like, oh, my heart shall not be grieved Because for this thing, the Lord your God, here it is again, will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from your land. Isn't that interesting? So this is a little different than that verse a few few minutes ago. The poor will never cease from your land. Therefore, I command you saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and needy in your land. And you can sum this passage up, I think, by saying something like, Truly worshiping God includes seeing the world in terms of generosity and big-heartedness and open-handedness. It's actually very simple, isn't it? So worship God is the idea with a big heart, open eyes, and an open hand. I don't think Moses is trying to answer every question, right? Do I have to meet all the financial need of every person when I walk down the street who asks me for money? 
and you're immediately like, I couldn't do that. Right. There are, there's math still, right? There's realities. But I think you catch the gist. If I stood before Jesus, would he say, were you that kind of person? I don't think he would say to me, you know, like exactly how much money did you give to everyone that stood on Roosevelt Boulevard with the sign? Right. But generosity, big heartedness, open handedness. That's what the worship of God, the whole life worship of God is going to look like. But notice again, like I said, what they need to watch out for. You probably saw it. Verse seven, a hard heart. Verse nine, wicked thoughts in their heart. The word wicked there isn't, it translates a Hebrew word that has more to do with worthlessness than evil. It's an interesting word. It's not like what we usually think of when we think of wicked. It's like worthless, right? It's a low thought there in verse nine. It's beneath you as God's people would be the idea. And in verse 10, as I said, make sure your heart's not grieved when you give. So realistic, so realistic. You can't worship God and obey his commands to include people who need things and at the same time be wishing you didn't have to give at the same time. Like it's, God's getting to the heart of things here. So those are the kind of things that will keep us from actually enjoying God and from being able to worship him out of lives full of significance and weight, which is what he's after for us, I think, right? Hard hearts, closed hearts, closed hands. And this idea continues right through the next section, verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you and serves you for six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, for your threshing floor, and from your wine press. For uh, from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give him. You see, always that emphasis from God, right? I gave it to you. So hook this guy up when he needs it. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, this this brother, Hebrew man, I will not go away from you because he loves you in your house since he prospers with you. That's, that's interesting, right? Then you shall take an awl, pointy piece of metal, thrust it through his ear to the door, a little ritual they had to do, and he shall be your servant forever. He's like, I don't want to go anywhere. This place is awesome. I love living here, right? And also to your female servant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free uh, from you. He has been worth a double hired servant serving you six years. And then the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. And this is important to note. I just feel like I need to say this every time. What's being talked about here has nothing to do with anything like the Atlantic slave trade in our history, right? Which among other evils was based on kidnapping and therefore is completely condemned by scripture. And that's just true if you read the Bible, right? This here was an economic arrangement where instead of government organized welfare, again, just we saw a minute ago, individuals could provide a safety net for people who fell into financial distress. But remember, everything matters, so suffering matters, and people matter, and so because of that, our economic arrangements matter. I think that's at the core of the idea here. So God's people are called to worship God by being a blessing in any economic arrangement and by caring about mercy more than money. It's nice both those words start with M, so you get the little preacher sounding thing, but it's there, right? We should care about mercy more than more than money. And again, just imagine what kind of life we're talking about if, if verse 16 could actually happen. A guy falls into debt, and I, we don't like this language, but this is what's used here. So he sells himself. Y'all work for you for six years. 
and that's it. I'm I'm completely dedicated to you. And and you know maybe you're the person who's in the better financial position. You're like, all right, great. And then in six years, you go to him, and you're like, hey man, it's the seventh year. It's the Sabbath year. I got the stuff already. I got I got your portion. You know, got some gifts. Ready to go. I'm gonna send you away. Your debt totally paid. Thank you. It's been great. And um, let me know when you want to pick it up when your stuff's packed. And he's like, what? I'm not going anywhere. And you're like, what? Are you serious? He's like, oh, yeah. I've been thinking, like, can we do the thing with the all? Because I love it here. And in Leviticus, it says, you know, if he's married a wife in your household, and he's like, I, this is our life. Like, do you see, like, we just don't even have categories for this kind of thing. Do you see what I'm after here? I'm not saying I totally understand it. I'm saying, like, we're, we're bumping into something here that is way more than just like, well, that's old and ancient and they had old rules. Like, God's telling us about a kind of society you could live in where something like that might actually happen. Like, he had to have a little ritual. This, this is what you do. Otherwise, they'd be like, what do I do? The guy's not leaving. You know, I'm not packing my stuff. And the, the rabbi would say, well, you got to do the thing in Deuteronomy with the all, and then he can stay forever. Like, oh, we could do that. Maybe you're friends by this time. Like, awesome. It's going to kind of seem weird without you here, man. Well, good, because I'm not leaving. Let's do this. Life, right? And then in verse 19, we're right back to talking about sacrifice and celebration with more insight here into how spirit, true spirituality works. Look at verse 19. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord chooses. But if there's a defect in it, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and clean person alike may eat it. Uh, meaning ritually clean or unclean, if they had touched a dead body or something, whatever, as if it were a gazelle or a deer, only if you only you shall not eat its blood, you shall pour it on the ground like water. So these are the verses we discussed in our home groups last week, if you were there. And quickly, because God matters, how we worship him matters. So you can't worship God with defective effort, I think would be an idea, defective, defective things, defective effort, defective love, defective devotion. You can't bring trash to God, would be like kind of what's being said here. You can't bring leftovers to God. So hence, didn't Jesus say this? Love the Lord your God with your whole heart. He actually did talk this way, right? And in the interest of time now, what I want to do for just a few minutes, and then we're going to jump right into praising the Lord. I'm going to move a little quickly through these verses in 16 and just point out just a few more of these big themes here. So look at 16.1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction. For you came out of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day, keep saying things like that, right? That you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life, and no leaven, yeast, shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until the morning. Notice the point of this 
in verse three again, like I said, that you may remember. Memory matters. Time matters. So God established a calendar for Israel in which the rhythm of life in Israel was moved along by these festivals of remembrance and worship. And that was just sort of their year. And verses five to eight actually detail one of these festivals. Look at verse five. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, there you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall roast it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go into your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So Passover was the, fe- the festival that God instituted to remember the night uh, when he had spared the firstborn of Israel, had passed over their houses when the firstborn of Egypt died. And like all of the directions that God gave for the different festivals, Israel was learning here that they needed to, they needed to worship God at his direction, right? He was going to give directions for how to worship him, where he chooses specifically, when he chooses. And it's actually the same for us, I think, even though, again, these, this schedule and these rituals don't apply. But again, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 25, tells us not to forsake the gathering of believers that we're connected to. So that means that if you say, where and when does God choose for me to worship him? At least one important part of the answer is whenever and wherever my church is gathering. The gathering of God's people matters. It's not saying that you can't go out in the woods and worship. I love the woods. I can worship God in the woods. The woods are awesome. Maybe for you, it's the beach or wherever. I don't know, right? Um, it's not saying you can't worship God alone or early in the morning when no one's there. By all means, get up before the sun tomorrow and worship the living God. But an, an important part, if you say, where can I go? There's no tabernacle anymore. There's no, there's no festival of Passover. So I'm a little confused because we don't have that calendar. Well, where are the the Christians that you're livingly a part of, where are they getting together and when are they getting together? And that's where you go. And I think that's part of the application there. And then look at verse nine. You shall count seven weeks for yourself. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the grain. So now it's based on the harvest, right? So this is agricultural, verse 10. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son, there it is again, right? You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your gates, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place your Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statues. Again, I told you guys, I say to my sons, if the Bible repeats it, it's because it's important. So here we are, these are important things, this repetition. What does God want? Rejoice in his presence and don't leave anyone out. Make sure everyone's a part of this. Verse 13, you shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your wine press and you shall rejoice in your feast, your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. See, see, reading this much scripture, you start hearing the rhythms, right? I don't even really have to make a huge point because you're just, oh, this is on the heart of God. Verse 15, 
Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, so that you shall surely rejoice. Three times a year your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he's given you. So worship God all year because time matters. So establish rhythms of celebrations and remembrance. Maybe it's like punctuate your year with time specifically focused on God and and who God is and, and what he's done. It's all over this passage. Worship and joy. Worship remembering where he brought you from. And, and of course, as we've seen all night, Christians aren't commanded to keep these specific feasts, but our time is no less significant. Again, I just, I, I just don't think we can say that enough. The, the, the evacuation out of our lives of the specific rules aren't meant to evacuate our life of meaning. It's, it's actually quite the opposite, right? It's just as important that we gather and celebrate and remember God and worship Him and that we do it regularly. That's just as important. But of course, all of life, like we said, every table, an altar, every gathering with Christ with us, with the Holy Spirit, can be of this sort of significance. And for us, you know, he keeps saying, remember, remember you were slaves in Egypt. We weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were slaves to sin. And that should be right at the heart of our gatherings too, right? We were, I was a slave to sin. And now I am a child in God's house. And that is a reason to celebrate. That should be right at the core of like what it feels like to run into a Christian, right? This is a person who has a deep sense of gratitude and, and, a, and a second chance at life that they didn't deserve. And when you get in a room with a bunch of them, you should just sense like these people all look in each other's eyes and they're like, I should have gone to hell. Right? But I'm not going to. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. And he has the authority and, and the love to forgive me. And Paul says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter two, it's rich, it's huge. And so there's like I said, a hundred other things we could talk about with these laws and probably great things to get and to know. But maybe just the heart of it for tonight is what is the righteous requirement of that law that we read in Deuteronomy? It's to remember, to know, and to live a life that ourselves worships God in joy and thanksgiving and looks around and brings others into that as well. Because ultimately, no one has to be excluded from that. And again, if for some reason you're not, you're, you're, if you're on the outside, God's door is open and he's calling you in. He is just calling you in. The sacrifice has been made. The feast is prepared. Repent of your sins. Call Jesus Lord and become a son or daughter of God. It's free and your debts will be forgiven, not just for seven years, forever.
forever. So let's stand and let's just sing the praises of the Lord for a couple minutes. Hey guys, Tom here from the Philly Arnold's podcast. We hope that this teaching from our in-person gathering here at Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia was a blessing to you. If you're listening and you're living in the Philadelphia area and you're looking for young adults ministry to get plugged into, we'd love to see you out. For more information about our ministry or the podcast, visit philyyoungadults.com. God bless you guys.